This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Mending the Heart, Tending the Soul, Directions to the Garden Within. And the author is Dr. Gail Albert, and Gail joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gail. Hi. Great to have you with us. This Good book is a guide, as you put it, a guide to deep wisdom, providing interpretations, uh, meditations, personal experiences of taking a look, a real in-depth look of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you'll tell us why you did that in a moment, uh, but it, it really is to help us to get out of that comfort zone that we're in, applying these great biblical stories to, to literally us today. So, first of all, though, Gail, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you decided to do this. Okay. I've been a certified teacher of Jewish, mystical, and meditative practice for people of all faiths since 2004. For anyone who might be wondering what I can offer to all faiths, my experience in working with people of different religions is that the deep spiritual path goes to the same places, regardless of the tradition from which we start. Also, the surface text of these first five books largely tells the story of the Israelites, and the word Israel in Hebrew simply means one who wrestles with God. So it's written for people on the spiritual path wherever we start from. I'm also a writer and a psychologist with a doctorate from Johns Hopkins in psychology. My first book, I began writing when my husband had just been diagnosed with terminal lymphoma. He was in his mid-30s. That book called Matters of Chance was a novel. uh, It was also a book with the Mun Club alternate. really addressed the question of why do bad things happen? Does life have meaning other than what we see in our everyday world? Then I wrote another book, later published by Faber and Faber, on what makes for really effective personal change in psychotherapy, after which my husband died and I needed to support our children. Working with a friend who was a psychiatrist, I helped start and then directed a program for homeless mentally ill people, ultimately all over New York City, who would, through our program, receive psychiatric care for free at drop-in centers and shelters and outreach programs, all kinds of places, so that they could come indoors Um, and begin to get their lives back. I did that for about 10 years, and spending day after day with people who had lost everything, not just their jobs and their homes, but their families, their friends, their very identity. And, And sometimes people would say to me that the worst thing about being homeless was that no one would look at them in the face, so it was as if they were no longer part of the human race. Being around them and seeing again and again that either not just despite all this, but perhaps because of all this, 
what was clear was a purity that they all had at their core. Didn't mean they weren't difficult, but, but there was a purity that shone through that seemed to be completely independent of anything material, you know, in their lives. And that was profoundly, not only moving, but transforming for me. After about 10 years, I moved to upstate New York, to Woodstock, New York, where I started a private practice in addition to a full-time job for the county supervising all their mental health programs. I was raised Jewish, but I had really been away from Judaism for most of my adult life, very much away. There's been a lot of death and pain in my life and a lot of illness from the time I was very little, including my own illness. And my own depression and anxiety, really major way of that, through much of my life. And then bereavement and grief. Also, my father was one of the first American soldiers into Auschwitz. He brought back photographs that he took then of the survivors, the few, that I never could forget. So I'd always been searching for a spiritual home, but for whatever reason, Judaism had not felt like my home for most of my life. Then in Woodstock, when I moved up here, I connected with a wonderful synagogue, a Reconstructionist synagogue is what it's called, with lots of music and singing and a really deep spiritual life. It felt like coming home. I took a lot of classes there on weekends and began going to services. Then in 2001, I got a brochure in my mail that came out of the blue. I had no idea how it got there, who sent it. I finally found out who did, but not until much later. It described an intensive three-year program that came out of Berkeley, California, to become a teacher of Jewish meditative and mystical practice. It felt as if there were a beacon of light coming from Berkeley and honing in on my heart, like a lighthouse beacon. It was completely insane, as far as I could tell, to sign on to this program, but I had to do it, and of course it's changed my life completely. So I left my job shortly after signing on, um, and I've had a psychotherapy practice and been teaching since then. The groups I've worked with cross faith lines because at the deepest level we all speak the same language, whatever our starting tradition. And I've worked with, you know, Jews and Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and Native American even. I shouldn't say even because we all go to the same place. The spiritual path addresses the questions that we all confront of why do bad things happen to good people? How can I cope with the unpredictableness of life, with how much I can't control, with losses, with grief? How can I be happier, less anxious, less depressed, less self-critical, less boxed in, as you said earlier, less caught up in our stuff? How can I get on better with the people I live with? Is there a larger meaning to my life? All of those questions. And as I studied and I taught, I felt that my own life was changing enormously for the better. I was much calmer, much more equanimity, much happier, even joyous, I would say, more spontaneous, and aware of somehow the holiness of animals and plants and rocks, which had always been relatively easy, but even of the driver of the slow car in front of me, <laughs> or the person I was disagreeing with politically. I, I really felt myself being transformed both in my behavior, which other people commented on, and in my inner experience. Meanwhile, other people were finding that my teaching was enormously helpful to them, even life-changing. 
So I had to pass it on by writing the book. So my first book was about why bad things happen and how to cope with loss. My second book was about personal change and transformation. And this book puts it all together in a spiritual frame as well as a psychological one. Well, your book, my, whole life, my whole life has gone into it. Your Go book on. has uh, 54 sections, uh, beginning with the opening yeah. of Genesis and ending with the last reading in Deuteronomy. But you call it a step-by-step guide to, to the spiritual path. So all these stories are helping us go step-by-step. Yes. I think that it's, that in fact, it's, as I said, I guess I didn't say this yet. In traditional Jewish teaching, it's understood that these books are meant to be interpreted as directions for the inner personal spiritual journey. And I found in offering contemplations and visualizations on each section that indeed it was offering, they were offering a step-by-step shift in our inner life as they move from beginning to end. Genesis is largely a kind of preface which describes a lot in terms of how we behave when we don't have external guidance and rules because Genesis takes place before there really are any rules given us, any commandments for behavior. And so a lot of it is about that, but there's also it follows the progression as well with the final books of Genesis showing us really where we can get spiritually if we keep moving forward. So we, say more about that? Yeah, go ahead. so we take this great story that we're all familiar with, with Abraham mm-hmm. commanded to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Huh. Now, what <laughs> is his life, what is this event telling us? Okay, that is probably the hardest piece of the first five books for everybody, okay? It was pointed out to me a long time ago that if one immediately begins to read this as a metaphor for losing that which is dearest to one in one's life, what can be dearer than a child? So the first thing it's pointing to is the possibility of loss of that which we care most about, and what do we do with that? That's one way to read it, and it's a very legitimate way. And I read it that way in terms of Jacob bowing to the what we could call God or fate or life or what appears to be the inevitable. His most beloved son is going to be taken away from him, just as he's lost his other son, Ishmael, who's been exiled. Um, What I do with that, in addition, I don't know how the readers, the listeners will take this one, but the next section of Genesis talks about, it's about Isaac, the son who, in the end, is not sacrificed. And And, of course, a lot of people talk about this in terms of, well, this God doesn't want child sacrifice. Other gods of the period did. I'm not going there particularly. But the next Parsha, which is all about Isaac's life, what's fascinating is that Isaac has almost no existence. He's a shadow figure. He's very passive. He speaks only twice in the entire book of Genesis, once to ask his father, where are we going before the sacrifice, and once when his son Jacob, is deceiving him, pretending to be the older brother so that he can steal the blessing of the older brother. He is blind and can't really see, and he asks, who are you? Are you my, who are you? Which son are you? And he basically retraces all the steps of Abraham's life, of his father's life. He doesn't do anything new or different. He digs the same wells. He goes on the same journeys. He doesn't really quite exist. 
and my reading of this and the contemplation that we do with this is no matter how important the belief is, what does it do to look at it from the point of view of the person who is the object of someone else's passion, fanaticism, intense belief, and what does it do to them to be the object, not to be seen as a human being with their own rights, their own life? So that's where I go with it. Is that an answer? Very good. Did Very good, yeah. yes. And yeah. let's, in the time we have left, why don't you just tell us uh, a little bit about the exodus from slavery. We all know that great, you know, the Ten Commandments obviously made it, mm -hmm. we can visualize it uh, often because we've seen that movie so much, but how exodus from slavery is paralleled in our own lives. Mm -hmm. So the understanding in the text is that Egypt is not a physical place. Again, in the Hebrew, the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, which simply means the place of constriction, the place, the narrow place. And so it refers to, again, in, in this interpretive reading, it refers to all the places in which we are constricted by our own fear and need to protect ourselves. Again, whether it's about having to, you know, get a bigger salary or a larger car or have power or whatever coping strategies we have to make ourselves feel safer in the world, including overeating, you know, anything like that. Um, and instead, get us toward, across this wilderness, which, you know, 40 years worth, the Israelites travel, the God restless travel, which is the wilderness of life, you know, for all of us. And it takes most of our lives to travel, to increasingly get freed up, if we're lucky and head toward this promised land, which is the place where our heart can be open, where we can let go of harshness, where we're filled with love, not just in a general, vague way, but in the nitty-gritty details of being in the slowest line at the grocery store, or having, you know, our spouse's socks on the table, or whatever it is it is, I'm speaking as a woman here, um, or our child disobey us, or disagreeing with somebody in our daily lives, and so that we can feel the joy and love and spontaneity and feel deeply connected to one another and the world and the mystery that we call God. And where we can feel safe no matter what is happening to us, even as we walk through the shadow of the valley of death. So that's the ultimate goal of being freed from enslavement. So as you write, this book... Mending the Heart, Tending the Soul, uh, traces a path of psychological growth and spiritual transformation and addresses some big questions. Uh, we just got about a minute left. You know, what would be some of those questions? You know, it's in really the details of everyday life. So it's like my calling you before to find out if I had it right, you know, what, because I wasn't sure if maybe... Been, I had gotten misunderstood it, but doing it without feeling either any self-criticism or any criticism of you or just accepting that this, for the moment, it's not clear what comes next. So, Does that make sense? Sure. Just a, We have to just accept life as it comes. Right. And we, we still, I mean, that's really the ultimate place is to be present to the moment as it comes 
and not blame and that, ourselves. And that understanding, the translation of, of God, that God's name is given to Moses, is at the burning bush, is I will be what I will be. And to come to be able to live with that, with equanimity and without fear. And it means in every moment. Well, your book this is a big story. Right. It's a big, big it, job. It, it, and, and your book challenges our thinking, and that's what you want to do. You really want us to take us on an intellectual and a spiritual journey. It's very much an experiential journey that I'm asking for. The contemplations, the visualizations, take one into the text and really speak to the heart in a very deep way. It's like going into a dream, because the whole book, the books are really written in a kind of dream language. We've been listening to Dr. Gail Albert. She is the author of her book, Mending the Heart, Tending the Soul, Directions to the Garden Within. Gail, tell us how to get your book. It is available either at Amazon.com or BNN.com or iUniverse, and it is orderable from pretty much any bookstore in the country, or, or actually outside the country even. So. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Can I ask you one question? Sure. Um, did I say about, I did say about uh, God rest her, that Israel means. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Betrayal of Trust. And the author is B.B. Wright. And Barry joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Barry. Hi, how are you doing? Great to have you with us. Uh, this Thank is you. quite a mystery. It's got everything. It, it's an adventure. It's, suspe- it's suspense. It's romance. 
of course, we're talking about some characters uh, who not only are they human, but they're very vulnerable, and you'll get into some of the details on that. But let me read what you've written about your book, just so everyone in general knows what we're going to be discussing. You say this, what if everything you ever believed in turned out to be a lie? When Edward Slocum, executive vice president of Chemcor Pharmaceuticals, sees armed men at Building 3C on the company premises, he becomes suspicious of his organization's operations. And before long, he finds himself propelled on a dangerous roller coaster ride of events that will irrevocably change his own life and endanger the future of his entire community. Well, it sounds like it has the, all these great, great elements of a page-turner. I guess that's what you're hearing, aren't you? Well, that's what I'm trying to, uh, to do, certainly within the, uh, the book. Um, I think with um, the other aspect that uh, probably should have been added there is that Edward Slocum is sort of fraught with guilt over his wife's death. And, and because of that, he's also struggling with his rekindled attraction to his teenage sweetheart, Charlotte Bradley. And uh, along with that is uh, his growing misgivings about uh, his friend John Elkhart, who uh, actually got him into uh, the company a number of years uh, before. Well, before we go into the details, Barry, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this kind of a book. Oh, well, well um, my background is, uh, interestingly enough, is in mathematics and education. Uh, my degree is actually in mathematics and education. Um, I've worked in industry and business and, of course, education. And uh, uh, during my time in uh, in the education part, I was um, I was co-authoring a uh, actually the first math textbook series in Canada for uh, for Prentice Hall called MathScope and um, also uh, at a later date I validated a, a number of the mathematics workbooks for the uh, independent learning center which is part of our ministry of education here at Ontario um, I left education for a short time uh, went into uh, real estate appraisal and then um, eventually moved from real estate appraisal back into uh, teaching but in this case uh, I work with um, adults uh, at retraining program through Seneca College and, um, and then got involved with the Canadian Standards Association where I worked with a, a number of wonderful people in putting together a guide for public involvement. Um, I've also been involved too with uh, a number of uh, local uh, things within our, uh, within our community. Uh, for example, I, uh, I worked with uh, one of the... Uh, the local councillors uh, uh, as a campaign manager during election periods. Um, I've also been lucky enough to be involved in a number of the uh, um, community theatre plays, uh, uh, Black Sunday being one last real summer, etc. really enjoyed being part of that as well. Um, after I retired from education a few years back, I, uh, I even read for a CBC radio play, but unfortunately I... I got cut on the second round, um, but I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed the experience of having gone through it. Um, it was during, I guess, shortly after that period that I began um, taking a writing course at Humber College under the tutelage of Sandra Burtzell. And um, that's, that's when the writing actually uh, started for me. That's where I began, I guess, my process of, of learning how to write a novel. And... Um, also during that time, I, uh, I continued to uh, volunteer at the Trillium Hospital and uh, 
and did all the, I guess, the important things that one has to do in life, which is, in my case, taking care of my family and uh, making sure uh, that uh, I saw my grandchildren uh, often enough, which became a very important part of my life. And, uh, of course, needless to say, the uh, the writing. Uh, but I have to add one little important thing here because I uh, none of anything I've ever done uh, in, in my uh, in my life could ever have really happened without the uh, really strong support of my my partner uh, Jean, uh, my dear wife. Uh, I uh, I really couldn't do it, it. It just she helps to make it work. I think that's the best way of of saying it. Without her, I don't think it would. I wouldn't have had the opportunities to do all the wonderful things that I've done up to this point in my life. Tell us about Edward Slocum. Where did this character come from? Oh boy, he's uh, he's sort of a, a mix of a whole lot of people. I think a little bit of me is in him, in, in terms of the uh, the risk taking. Um, he's uh, he's several characters in one. I wouldn't say he's a particular person at all. He just he sort of made when I was putting him together. Um, initially, I started him off as of all things, an alcoholic, and, and he, uh, it took almost a whole chapter the first time I was writing it <laughs> to get him out of bed, and and and, um, and he evolved into the character he is now, which um, I think is a uh, a character who uh, probably represents um, most of who we are that are out there. Uh, that was my intention. Uh, I'm hoping as people read. Um, the uh, the novel that they would see a little bit of themselves in Edward Slocum and, and understand um, why he was fraught with guilt, for example, over his wife's death and and why his rekindled attraction to his um, teenage sweetheart Charlotte Bradley, for example, was um, um, was understandably a, a very difficult thing for him to deal with because he hadn't he hadn't really got over um, his uh, his wife Karen's death uh, that had uh, occurred two years prior to uh, when the novel actually starts. Is he a bit of a crusader? Um, is he a crusader? I, I wouldn't say he was so much of a, a crusader. I think he, he certainly was a person who um, um, was – he often – he got caught in his job – there was a sort of a dedicatedness that he had to the job, especially as he was developing this new um, filtering system that uh, that he was doing. And and, and I think his um, his focus became um, too much to the point where it affected his marriage, and and that's where a lot of that guilt comes from, is the fact that he had given too much into the uh, design and uh, of this filtering system that he was working on to the exclusion of, of what I think he realized much later on was really important, which was his relationship with his wife. But unfortunately, um, she, um, she dies. And um, it's, uh, it's trying to find out the questions around what happened the evening that she died that I think motivated him forward to try to find out more of what's going on. Uh, I think the... So was he suspicious at the very, at the very beginning of when she died that something else had happened? Yeah, he had, 
well, he, he couldn't figure out why she was out that late at night. He had spoken to her um, uh, earlier that evening from a conference in which he was presenting um, um, at, and um, as far as he was concerned, she was going to be home. So he, he didn't understand why she was out. I, I, I think that the, as the story evolves, um, I think what really leads him down the route of discovering the truth behind it, of course, um, is, is of course, what, what he discovered in the company that he was working for. And I think the other question mark that drove him was that um, he found out after the fact that uh, during the autopsy that, uh, that she, uh, she was pregnant. And um, he didn't know that. And, and, and I think that really bothered him quite a bit. He didn't, he didn't know that she was pregnant. She hadn't told him. And uh, it was an awful way for him, I guess, to, uh, to find out that uh, find out that information on the, uh, the autopsy. So that particular question, why didn't she tell me, I think for him was part of the driving force initially. Of course, he, does, then, he doesn't know sorry. about Chemcor and their involvement in some real, uh, very illegal and even international kinds of implications. Oh, yeah. I, I think that that walk he took on that evening was, uh, uh, I mean, he didn't expect anything like that at all. Um, and uh, that opened the door to, uh, to so, so much. And the problem that he did have um, is that he had been noted um, in the past of having a drinking problem. And, I, and that really, in fact, occurred because of the loss of his wife. Uh, he had to deal with that issue. But um, because of that drinking problem, of course, he was suspect in terms of what he said he saw. And um, so what he attempted to do, of course, at that point was he, he, needed, he needed support from somewhere. And um, eventually, of course, uh, things began to happen where the uh, the support eventually came from um, his teenage uh, sweetheart, uh, Cheryl Bradley. So we're talking about some major drug smuggling here. Absolutely. Actually, it's in, in a number of different little levels because uh, you, um, you, you have the um, – the uh, Garcia Herquiza, who's uh, a very charismatic individual within the uh, uh, within the community, um, but un- unbelievably ruthless, who uh, is the head of the uh, drug cartel in that local area, and, uh, and of course they're smuggling um, cocaine into the United States from rural Canada. Um, the other aspect that you've got is the sibling rivalry between. Um, the the two brothers, uh, Camilo and uh, Andres, and uh, the fact that uh, uh, Camilo uh, now is in order to get into that area is is now looking at trying to open up something for himself. Um, and the other aspect too that you get into is um, how they use the um, um, certain drugs as payoff. In order to uh, gain the sorts of, um, of support in bringing in um, this uh, cocaine uh, from um, other uh, locations, uh, for example, the OxyContin is uh, is a uh, certainly comes up. It's illegal up here now, but uh, the fact that it was made illegal uh, it 
turned it around, I think, to make it fairly expensive um, in the street. So um, all of these factors kind of come together in, in a in a way that I think, uh, I hope, provides the, the beginning of an insight to um, a world that uh, that's quite nasty. And a tie to Hezbollah as well. Yeah, that, that, um, that I came through with, um, came across, I should say, with uh, some research that, uh, that I was doing into, that, into the area of Colombia at the time. And I came across that, and uh, and I thought, hmm, it's a very timely inclusion at this point, and uh, it's something that um, uh, will probably be pursued. I'm not well giving too much away in in the second book, uh, because the first book, a lot of the a lot of the action occurs within that rural area of. Um, uh, Priceville and uh, Owen Sound, and uh, but it's that area just an hour and a half north of the uh, Toronto here in Ontario. Um, the next book will take you a much further afield. It'll take you uh, through uh, Ottawa, Montreal, and uh, Quebec City, and off to Vancouver, and into the northern regions of Canada, and 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 so it will expand on a lot of these issues that were purposely not quite finished in the first book. Uh, it, it will uh, allow developments of characters that, uh, um, that weren't fully developed. Uh, I mean, there's, there's this one little story, I think, that trails through it uh, that deals with uh, Carmela. And, uh, of course, the question will come up is, does Carmela appear in the... Uh, in the second book, and, and I'll leave that as a question mark at the moment. Uh, one of the other characters, Juarez, uh, shows up, and, and I, I know I have a number of people who've read the book who are guessing, uh, does he continue on or is he finished? And again, I, I will leave that as a question mark. Uh, I know that Charlotte and uh, Edward and um, and Janet Thompson will continue on, and I try to set that up within the uh, the novel through the politics um, aspect of it, especially for Janet Thompson. So I really want to develop her. There are a lot of things that were still not completely um, 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 completed within that first novel, but will be completed as part of her story in that uh, in that second novel. So the story, if we were giving it a movie rating, would be PG-13? Um, yeah, I think it would be. Um, I think... Um, it, it it certainly is designed to um, attract both genders, and certainly, um, I certainly have, I know <laughs> I have teenagers who have read it, and and their parents were okay with it being read, uh, so yeah, I think PG thirteen would probably um, would it would be okay, it would fit in for that, absolutely. We've been listening to BB Wright. He's the author of his book, Betrayal of Trust. Tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, uh, Kobo, Kindle. Um, and I would also say that if, if people want to see all the platforms where I'm located, um, they can um, Google me at uh, BB Wright uh, Betrayal of Trust. And I think there's about six pages of uh, that, that pop up that give you all of the locations um, where the, uh, the book can be found, where I can be found, uh, uh, and um, and I think should hopefully satisfy potential readers uh, as to uh, how to access me. 
And right is spelled W-R-I-G-H-T. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me. I, I enjoyed this. This was uh, very, very nice. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 or 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Cure for Cancer. No chemotherapy, no radiation, no surgery. And the author is Dr. Weston Blair. And Dr. Blair joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Blair. Well, good morning. Great to have you with us. This is an incredible faith-promoting story, your story, personal experience, because back in 2005, you were diagnosed with cancer, a very high stage of it. Uh, Immediately, the doctors are saying chemotherapy, radiation, and of course, the rest of the story is how you approach that and you put your faith in God, and you'll tell the details about that. But uh, first of all, Dr. Uh, Blair, uh, take us back. Take us back before that terrible announcement. You've got cancer. Nobody wants to hear that. But uh, as you point out, uh, statistics are that it's pretty uh, fair chance that just about half of everybody's going to hear that, right? That's true. Um, one of the things that we don't realize is that uh, and certainly after I became aware of uh, the threat of cancer, that um, it's like 40% of all people uh, in their lifetime will have some form of cancer. 
And I thought when I read those statistics, I was absolutely astounded. Right. Of course, the the, the normal uh, therapy for that uh, is chemo or radiation, and and if that doesn't work, then surgery. And I chose not to do any of those. Well, you're an ordained minister. Uh, you're a Ph.D. You have a master's and a Ph.D. in management, uh, so you're not a medical doctor. But So when the... When you heard those terrible words, what was your first reaction, Dr. Blair? What were you feeling and your wife, you were both feeling? When the doctor, when Dr. Castoris asked our family physician, when he said, um, I had been going to him because of swollen lip glands, and he would tell me, no, no, there's nothing wrong. Um, it's just swollen lip glands, there's nothing else. So after two or three trips uh, back and forth to the to our, our family physician, uh, I told him, I said, well, I want to know what's causing it, what it is and what's causing it. And he said, um, okay, we'll have, we'll have some uh, tests run on it. So he did, and, and then when the diagnosis came back as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, not surprisingly, the first thing that hit my, my mind was fear. My, my mother, uh, she had cancer, and she died of cancer. I saw her linger uh, for several months, laying on, on, uh, on, on the bed, dying of cancer. So, you know, um, it's, it's a frightening thing. Certainly. Certainly, but... What was the discussion between you and your wife then when you were told, boy, we've got a, it's as urgent, chemotherapy, radiation, urgent, urgent, urgent. What what did you feel? Well, Steve, I, the first thing I did when, when I was diagnosed with, uh, with, with cancer is I, I went, I am a man of the word. I mean, what I mean by that, I am a, a man of the Bible. And so what we did, friend and I, my, my, faithful, my faithful wife of now uh, 53 years, we went through the Bible and we, we picked out every verse that has to do with health and healing. And we memorized those those verses. We memorized them. We 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 got them implanted within the heart. And 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 the the word. This is very important, Steve. The the word after going through this, we took it just like medicine, three to four times a day, and it produced faith within us. We had the faith to face what we were facing. So therefore, then when we were going back and forth to MD Anderson and Dr. San Diego, which is one of the, one of the top oncologists in the United States, um, he had, he had told me that, um, uh, originally he said the, this type of cancer, uh, uh, chemotherapy does the best when the cancer is growing aggressively. 
right now it's not growing uh, 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 at a fast pace. And he said, let's wait until the cancer becomes uh, larger. And I I said, well, let me ask you this. What will happen if I choose not to take chemotherapy or radiation? He said, well, in all likelihood, the cancer will have spread throughout your whole body. You now have it in the bone marrow. You have it in the glands. You, you will get it underneath the liver, and it will spread throughout your whole body. And that was not uh, really a word of encouragement. But what we did, like I was telling you, Steve, we went back, and we uh, picked out all the scriptures that has to do with health and healing. You call that your secret medicine? Secret medicine is the Word of God. And and by going over and over and over and over three times a day, three to four times a day, that word, the word, became implanted in our in our hearts. The word, uh, uh, the word that was uh, uh, that was spoken within our hearts, is um, you're healed. By your stripes, by his stripes, the stripes of Jesus Christ, you are healed. And the revelation that we were healed, that I was healed, came before the doctor said, what secret medicine have you been taking? And I told him what we had been doing. And Dr. San Diego said, well... Whatever you're doing, keep doing it because the tumors are shrinking. Come back in six months. We went back in six months, had all the tests run again, and when we went in to see him the next morning, he pulled out his file and when he came in. He looked at the, 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 uh, what was the, the, the PET scan that was done the day before. And he looked up at me and he says, I don't get to say this very often. Wow. But you no longer have cancer. Wow. He said, you, you leave MD Anderson and don't you ever come back. My you goodness. Live a normal life because you are cancer free. So two years, about two years? Yes. Two years of taking your secret medicine, which obviously is not a great secret because it's in the Bible. That's right. Uh, the Bible is very clear. By his stripes, you're, you're healed. There are so many, uh, I believe there's 31 scriptures that we have listed in the book on health and healing. And we have documentation. You know, we either trust what God says or we do what we react out of fear. Right. Okay, there would be some who obviously are going to question you on this, and you probably already have been, you know, the naysayers, the the, right. the lack of faith in a lot of people. Were there times, doctor, were there times where you were tempted to take the chemotherapy and the radiation, where you thought, I'm not sure I can go through with this without that? 
Absolutely. Uh, one of the last times uh, that we were there, well, the time before the last time we were there, we went in to see uh, to the doctor and uh, Dr. San Diego, and they ran all the tests, and the tests were, you know, like I said, throughout the whole body. And so that was when Dr. San Diego, after reading the charts, he said, uh, well, the, the cancer is growing aggressively. It's, it's spread, spread in, uh, in all different parts of your body. And he said, um, I recommend that we start chemotherapy. And I thought about it for a couple of months, a uh, couple of minutes, and I said, well, let me ask you, Dr. San Diego, if I wait, this was in October, and I said, if I wait until January, which would be the only the next time I could get in to see him, um, I said, what will happen, in your opinion? And Dr. San Diego said, well, it will have spread throughout your whole body. And, of course, that was frightening within itself. Right. And I said, uh, I thought for a couple of minutes, and I said, well, you know what? If I perish, I perish, but I'm going to trust the Word of God. That's the exact words I said. And we, from my wife and I, we poured, we poured our life into those scriptures, those scriptures on health and healing in the Bible. And we poured our life into it, and we took it in just like medicine, three to four times a day. And it worked. Three to four times a day. How much time do you think you spend each day praying, talking about it, pondering it? How much time do you say, think you spent a day? Well, we went over scriptures three to four times a day. It took us about 30 minutes to go over the scriptures. And, and when I say go over the scriptures, we would take the word in. Where the Bible, where it says, for instance, "I will not put any of those diseases upon you," we, I would, we would go over that. Lord, you have said you would put none of these diseases on us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you've promised not to allow this to be within our body, and we'd go over it. Uh, 20 to 30 minutes, three to four times a day. So close to two hours a day, you'd say. We took in, right. we got, we took in God's secret medicine. And it's only a secret because I didn't know that before then. I learned it because of, uh, because I was facing a life threatening experience. And that's when I went to the Word and I got confirmation that God wants to heal me. What's the importance of memorizing the scriptures? Well, because in memorizing and, and repeating them aloud, you know, the way we take in the scriptures, we take it in by what we see, we take it in by what we hear, we take it in by uh, speaking it, and you know, the Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We were built up uh, in our faith because of the Word of God, God's promise. And we would go over those 
those promises uh, three to four times a day, let's say 20 to 30 minutes each day. And it built, it the, the repeated going over and speaking it aloud brought faith, the faith to receive healing within my body. So it gave you hope. It gave me hope and it gave me faith to trust God's word. So obviously by the end of this experience, uh, when you found out in June of 2007 that you were cancer-free, totally cancer-free, what was the feeling? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was elation. Right. And it was a lot of praise. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And I've had the chance, the opportunity. Uh, Steve, every person I meet that has cancer, I take this book, A Cure for Cancer, and I've got, we've ordered, I don't know, well, last, uh, well in the last month we've given away um, over 200 books. Wow. Cancer, and we place them into the hands of people who have cancer. Right. Because that's what God would have us to do. He healed me, and I want people that have cancer to know there's hope. Yeah, there's more. There's a medicine more powerful than chemotherapy and radiation. It sure is. I've been dead. If it, if I, let me tell you what I knew. I could. Steve, I knew I could never. I would never survive chemotherapy. My my system, uh, my uh, my well, I mean my system. I mean my digestive system. Uh, anything that's uh, that that can upset my digestive system, right. you know, it, it'll he'll be upset. And so, therefore, you know, I could not take. I knew I could not take chemotherapy. Right. That's when I turned to God instead. We've been listening to Dr. Weston Blair. He is cancer-free. And his book, A Cure for Cancer, No Chemotherapy, No Radiation, No Surgery. Dr. Blair, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, it can be ordered. It can be ordered through um, Amazon.com. It can be ordered uh, I Universe, um, so Barnes and Nobles, you know, the bookstores. Sure, sure. All online retailers, or in fact, you can walk in a store and order it. That's right. Very good, Dr. Blair. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story of just more than faith promoting. It's uh, a reality, and God healed you. Thank you so much for being on I Universe Radio. Well, I'm thankful to be on it, and uh, I appreciate your calling and being able to share this with you, Steve, and with the audience that will hear it. it. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.